Welcome to Misinformation, hosted by Rebecca Jones and produced by Big Mouth Media. This weekly podcast with Florida COVID whistleblower Rebecca Jones dives into the world of disinformation and how it's hurting America and democracy. Now, here she is, Misinformational. joining us for misinformational special june 1st hurricane season edition i am joined by the amazing dr cindy banyai i am rebecca jones aka misinformational cindy how are you today i'm horrified that we are talking about hurricane season <laughs> and then i'm smiling most people are just like why are you smiling like, i'm in fort myers right i'm like getting flashbacks of hurricane ian Shit's still fucked up everywhere here. No, I'm not. No, Dang yeah. it, it's coming. All right, tell us about uh, it. There's a really funny clip in Modern Family where their like old man neighbor dies and the mom's smiling and yeah, and they're like, "Why are you smiling?" She's like, "This is how I deal with grief." I do get very excited about hurricanes, and so if I'm smiling when we're talking about catastrophic death and destruction, the reason is because by education, I am a hurricane climatologist and paleotempestologist to be specific which is a churched up word for I study how climate change interacts with hurricanes. And I did all of my Cool, cool. So that's a thing? That's like a <laughs> real. This was it yes. just made up by the communists or something? The atmosphere, changes in the atmosphere cause other changes in the atmosphere. Imagine that. You change and like other parts of the system affecting yes. certain yes. other parts will have different. That's a thing and that wasn't just like a Chinese hoax. I think is that what Rick Scott called it? I think that was Trump's phrase as a Chinese hoax. Okay. DeSantis has now claimed that people, researchers such as myself, are weaponizing weather, uh, right. which is an interesting way to interpret climate <laughs> science as a field. It's not surprising that a guy like that doesn't know the difference between weather and climate. So it's not, yeah, know. and not surprised that the guy who came in the shiny white boots <laughs> to Fort Myers after Hurricane Ian, yeah, looked like a complete fool because uh, nobody and, uh, looks like that they certainly aren't brand new and shiny but he yeah he looked like a jackass yeah so good at that. there hasn't been a natural or man-made disaster that he's touched that hasn't become worse just because he was present so mm -hmm. that's very much on brand for him but i wanted to understand better and the whole reason i went into that research was what how does global environmental change in this context, heating or cooling impact where hurricanes hit, how frequent they hit and how intense they are when they hit. So studying that trio is an exclusively geographical science. And that is what my background is in. And real quick, I have to plug in my charger because I was gonna say, did it. you get another cat or something? No, <laughs> they're still the ones that I have. Everyone I know has a cat found a cat somewhere. In the last yeah, two weeks. It's kitten season. So, kitten you know, season, yeah. So everybody's, you want a cat? And I'm like, no. I've got like baby cats that aren't ready to be out yet. In, in a couple weeks come to me. But so a couple things happened around this time of the year, every single year. Hurricane season starts June 1st. It is, it extends until November 30th. Most people don't realize it goes through November. Mm -hmm. Despite some recent changes in early hurricane activity in the Atlantic, we have not extended it to May. Although in 10, 15 years, I wouldn't be surprised. But right now, as it stands right now, it's half the year. We actually spend hurricane season half the year. And especially if you're in Florida, which is more likely than any other state 
to get hit, partly because, yeah, we have a whole lot of coastline. Our coastline just also so happens to stick right out into the Caribbean. Hurricanes love to go. So you don't have to. I've gone ahead and I have reviewed all of the models and projections for this hurricane season. Uh, Briefly bring you up on what that's going to look like. Model updates are due tomorrow, although there typically are not major changes unless something completely wildly unpredictable happens with El Nino which I'll talk about why that actually might happen this year. What are some of the common misunderstandings about hurricanes? And there's a second environmental issue that we're going to talk about that has gone viral in the last few days, and I'm actively on Twitter trying to nip in the bud. So first things first, we have every single year since 1980. I don't actually know if it's in here or not. It was in the 1980s that they started making hurricane model projections. I think it was like 84 from Colorado State University's basically big climate warehouse. And so in anticipation of hurricane season, they'll release what is considered the suite of best models to give idea an idea for how active. I just said idea twice. I get really excited about hurricanes, guys. So sorry about that. I was going to say too. Before we jump into the models, and I don't know how much you're going to talk about this, but can you tell us what a model is? Because there's some people that get confused about this as to this is like the plan, you know what I mean? Help contextualize maybe some of the factors, like what these models are telling us. Climate science is different from a lot of your other physical sciences. It's not like chemistry where we can conduct experiments in a lab testing as we mix different things together and then telling you what's going to happen because we live on a planet that we don't control and can't really run experiments on all of our climatological data is observational and that's simply because we've recorded it as it's happened you're talking about a myriad of different types of instrumentation over the many years Obviously, with satellites starting in the 1970s, we've had radar at different capacities with different resolutions over the years, and we have historical documents that range from wind speed machines taken by hand during Category 5 hurricanes in the 1920s to ship logs about where people thought they might have been when all of a sudden a giant storm came and then where they think they ended up. And so the job of hurricane climatologists is to try to make all of that standard, which is, especially with those old ship records I mentioned, very difficult, so that we can look into the future of season ahead of time or a decade ahead of time and anticipate what we might see with the different processes that we already know impact hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And those would be oceanic and atmospheric. So it's the interaction of air and water that makes a hurricane. Shocking, I know. So if we can understand what hurricanes have done in the past, then we can find years in the record that look like this year and say, well, we've based on all of the information we have about hurricanes going back 150 years in years that the ocean looked like this, like it does right now. And the atmosphere was doing what it's doing right now. These, this is the number of hurricanes that we had. That is basically what those kinds of models try to do from the historical perspective perspective. Now, we obviously know a lot more about the atmosphere every single year than we did before. Ocean is probably the last unexplored place on the planet, literally as far as deep sea exploration and figuratively in science. 
Yeah. And that makes anything involving oceanic modeling more complicated. And so it, it really is about trying to look in the past, say, one of the years that's most similar to what we're seeing right now is 1969. Hmm. And uh, if you are from the South or know anything about hurricanes in history, you will also know that 1969 was the year Hurricane Camille, the second hurricane to ever make landfall in North America, hit Mississippi and pretty much erased most of the coast. But it's still considered to be an about average year, general hurricane activity. So anytime we talk about hurricane predictions for a season, it only takes one. It takes the right. right conditions at the right time for one storm to get through and to be the first or the second strongest storm in history. So that's always important. But as far as emergency managers go, they like having this information. Yeah. Because it's not just how many we expect, even more than that, we're getting really good at saying where we think hurricanes will be. That mm -hmm. is the biggest improvement in modeling because we didn't have that capability 50 years ago to really look at any kind of obviously satellite data and, and instrumental data and be like, there's pockets that are incredibly warm next to the Northwest Caribbean. So that might mean we have more Gulf storms that mm. form it, that completely go from their whole cyclogenesis from start to finish in the Gulf. Think of Hurricane Harvey. So that hit, it formed off of the Yucatan Peninsula strengthened to a category five within two days and struck and made landfall as a category mm -hmm. five. And it was unprecedented. It's probably going to be the most studied storm in modern history, unless something else freaky like that happens. Michael mm -hmm. was the same way. Michael was not an Atlantic storm. It mm -hmm. formed in the Southern Caribbean. It within three days, within 72 hours, formed, strengthened into a category four hurricane and made landfall. So that kind of activity we're getting really good at saying. But of course, then you have your big ones, your Katrinas that came across the whole Atlantic Ocean, your Andrews, and, and then, they then came back into the Gulf and strengthened. And so we're really good at doing that, especially when it comes to the East Coast. Because the Gulf is generally warmer than the Atlantic. It's right. lower. It's close, more, much more close circuit. So we're seeing more and more Gulf storms compared to Atlantic storms. And so the interaction of all those oceans at the same time, with atmospheric conditions, is how we say, look, we're expecting a lot of Gulf hurricanes, not so much on the Atlantic side. So I just wanted to like pause so I can give like an overview of what you just said. I'm going to repeat back and you tell me if I, the very non-climatologist person, am understanding you. So we're looking at these models. There are people who have spent their life researching them on different capacities. They're doing historical research. They're looking at modern data. And they're taking these multiple data points and coming together to make a best guess as to how they think the hurricane season for this year is going to look. Yes, okay. that is essentially it. And we're getting really good at it. Every year, there are more improvements. This actually marks the first year for the nerds, the weather and climate nerds in here, that ACE was included in the models. So ACE is short for accumulated cyclone energy, uh, which is a measurement of the, I won't get in too nerdy with it, but it's a measurement that was, is fairly new as far as development. And this is the first year that it's been input into the models and most science before we go and make a major change to such a fundamental projection like this, we study how accurate a measurement is of something like this for years. And ACE has- You don't just guess? 
No. And we don't just throw in data that A, might be over-representative of a single system. So if you strap too much to it and it's all reporting the same thing, it's going to skew all of your models to whatever that overlapping thing is. And how accurate it is if we say, make our projections at the beginning of the season, and then we go back and then we say, oh, how far off were we, if we had included this, would it have been more accurate? And so this is actually, as far as hurricane nerdy people go, big change. And it's the first year it's been included. And I'm personally happy that they did it. I think there's a lot of other things we need to do as far as updating our systems for hurricanes, but that's the biggest change this year, except for one other thing. Now, normally when we go back and review the early season projections, they're pretty close. The range of options are increasingly narrow every year. So we could say, oh, we'll have between zero and a hundred and we'd be 100% correct. If right. we said we have between zero and 100 hurricanes, we will be absolutely correct in that projection because it's 100% accuracy. Yes. We will have been, but not useful. But not useful. Exactly. So our confidence intervals have, we've been making improvements with that and we're getting, we're getting pretty down to like fractions of chances for numbers of storms, which is quite impressive. And uh, climate science, especially interactions with weather is one of the most rapidly advancing fields. It's my own specialty. So yeah, I'm going to brag on it a little bit. And part of the reason is because people who study what I do, which is the historical part, because I've mentioned that we've had satellites since the 1970s. One of the most important systems in determining hurricane activity is the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation, which is everything in the ocean is a belt. Just think of it yeah. as a looping belt. And each one of those belts is a different length, which means that it changes at a different cycle than every other ocean belt. The Atlantic, as it says, is multi-decadal. So that makes it, if you haven't even gone through two full systems, like cold and warm in the Atlantic since satellites, makes it really difficult to have enough data to accurately say, we've only ever had one year of satellite data where this has happened because it hasn't changed that much because it's such a long-term shift that makes things hard. And so in order to improve it, people like me go back and they try to find, okay, I need to understand how, let's say the Atlantic multi-decadal impacts hurricanes. And so I will go and look at years where we know what it was doing based on other stuff and mm -hmm. say, where do we see hurricanes? How often were they? Were there any big ones? And not just like 50 years back, my specific research looked at thousands of years back, yeah. which also helps with the climate change because the last time that the planet was this hot was hundreds of years ago before we had Europeans documenting every single thing that happened here. It's actually called the medieval warm period. And so I was trying to focus on Native American burial grounds that were marking mass hurricane deaths to radiocarbon date where and when they were. That was my PhD dissertation. And so doing that helps us understand. And all of that feeds into what basically comes out is a couple hundred pages every year of what we think is going to happen and why. Yeah. So let me just emphasize here for everybody, this is a very complex science. There's a lot of people who are working on it, a lot of very highly qualified people. They're looking at historical data. They're looking at technical data, more recent data, long-term historic data, and they're coming together and 
the are using all these different pieces of information to help piece up together the picture of what's happening or what will happen now and into the future. Correct. And it's a very <laughs> delicate. It's very delicate, but it's a complex system. So there's a lot of different things, a lot of different factors. And that's why people get frustrated and said, oh, why didn't you know that the hurricane was going to go here or there or whatever? It's because That's different than climate. Okay. okay. Yeah. (laughs) But people get frustrated with the models and the predictions and they don't know the difference necessarily either, but like that, why is there not less more accuracy or people conflate different parts of the system as evidence that climate change, for instance, is not happening. But I think it's really important for us to remember is that this is not just something that people make up. It's not just like one guy in a room. It's like thousands and thousands Um, of scientists for decades and decades have been devoting their life and their brain trust to helping us understand it for the purpose too, by the way, of helping us to not die. (laughs) That's why I got into it. I went through Hurricane Katrina when I was 16 years old. I already had a fascination with weather because of storms that severe storms I'd been in before that. I grew up on the Mississippi coast. Camille is literally a monument everywhere you go. Um, Hurricane George hit in 1998, the year I moved down there. It was my first hurricane. It hit directly in my small town, did a loop over my town, which was a very freakish term. I saw alligators swimming down the streets. And ever since then, after having just moved to the South for the first time and not even knowing what an alligator was aside from children's books, I have been fascinated with weather. And it's an alligator NATO. Gator NATO? Gator NATO? I don't know. I'm always going to bring up shark NATO. And I actually went back and I found the footage from that years back. And it was, there was in Goshen, Mississippi, this alligator farm that was built adjacent to a riverbed. And yeah, sure enough, there, there were multiple instances of alligators swimming down the street. And for me as a child, that was like the only thing I could think about was, oh my God, there's al- you guys, we've got dinosaurs in the streets. What are we doing here? What are you taking me to? Because I'm from Pennsylvania. And uh, so I've always been interested in that. But Katrina really, well, I think anybody who knows that someone went through that probably could go without saying why I became so invested in hurricanes after that. I thought, Maybe my the future of my life when I was 16, I wanted to be a reporter. I would go into the worst places in the world and write about the stories that were hard to write, that nobody wanted to hear, that nobody wanted to even tell. War, famine, disease, hurricanes, earthquakes. That's what I wanted to do. I was basically a disaster chaser, and I wanted to tell the human stories. When I had my son in college, I realized that perhaps being in the worst places in the world all the time was not a suitable thing as a young parent. And maybe the safety of a lab would be better. I was a double major in earth science and journalism. So it was already easy to transition. And I felt like I was opting to, instead of telling the stories of these disasters to becoming part of finding solutions. Hmm. And that was that shift for me, but it, it is personal because I've lost family in Hurricane Katrina. I saw like the whole landscape erased. I saw the politicization of everything that happened afterwards. It is a defining thing, especially at 16 to experience, uh, which is how old I was or 17, maybe it was one or the other. And uh, yeah, and I wanted to make sure that what I saw happen would never happen again. Mm -hmm. And I dedicated my entire life to it. 
which is what brought me to the Department of Health because I was attached to the emergency management agency and worked active on hurricanes. So that brought me here. At any rate, that's my personal story about that. And then if you don't believe me that storms follow me, and if you're not already aware of the story on Easter day in 2020, during COVID, while I was working for the state, my family lost their house to an EF4 tornado that is to this day, the second widest tornado ever documented. Mm. And I thought my mom was dead for hours. It was terrifying, but they lost their house, just gone. Like it exploded. My two of my neighbors died. Yeah. Even as an adult, <laughs> they still that ran it. The odds of a tornado actually destroying your house are you're more likely to win the lottery. Maybe I should start playing or something, but I got bad number luck. So I'd probably be the, whatever the furthest number really? is and the possible change of lottery numbers, mine will <laughs> numbers will probably be that. Okay. But back to hurricanes. So this year, and this, I say this with very careful and I'll explain why they are expecting, and somebody just started weed whacking. So first let me shut this window. <laughs> So this year, we are expected to have a below average tropical cyclone season in the Atlantic. I want to be very careful about saying below average, because as I've said before, it takes one for it to be a very active season for you. And just because on the whole, we see a below average expected number of storms doesn't mean that a specific region won't be extremely active. As I just said not all hurricanes are not dispersed equally across space. Right. Major East Coast hurricanes are incredibly rare compared to Gulf hurricanes. And oftentimes because of these belts that we mentioned, the Gulf will be the most active during a certain type of year. So that is just a general overview. And when I say below average, very slightly below average, more close to average than below average. Sometimes people get these headlines and they're like, oh, it's not supposed to be that bad this year. And so if, even if there's a category three barreling down, they're like, oh, but it's not supposed to be that bad. That doesn't, each storm is different. Chaos theory, which you've probably seen in Jurassic Park or heard of thrown out there. Jeff Goldblum. With <laughs> physics theory developed in atmospheric science that a butterfly flaps its wings in Japan, you get sunshine instead of rain in New York City. There, that is first a very physical reaction. They're actually talking about atmosphere, but it really is rooted in atmospheric science. It's the idea that in a complex system, a single seemingly insignificant change, however temporary, can cause a compounding impact across the entire system. Mm -hmm. Butterfly, tiny flaps its wings, the whole world's weather changes. Now that's not, that might be somewhat of an exaggeration because if a butterfly is inside, it's probably not actually changing anything, but it really is that complex. And so that's why when you say we expect 13 named storms this season, that is a climatological analysis. But when I, when there's a hurricane actually there and they're trying to decide exactly how wide that cone of uncertainty goes, that's weather. And mm. that's an immediate data modeling based on exact conditions now, what we expect them to be in the next six hours. That's weather prediction or projection. But saying we expect about 13 named hurricanes this year is climate. 
So if you, yeah, it's more like your wardrobe versus what you're wearing today. So if you live in Florida, your wardrobe as a whole is probably going to look a lot different than what it does if you lived in Montana. They both have hot days and need the same outfit. So it's your wardrobe versus what you're wearing today. And there are 13 named storms that they're expecting. And this is 5% below what we saw last year. And if you're familiar with last year, that was not so great for Florida. <laughs> so again, these, the years that they pull up, they're like, oh, we're very similar to last year. And for a lot of places they're like, oh, okay. So that wasn't so bad, but Lee County might disagree with you about that not being so bad. So again, yeah. it, it takes pretty much sucked for us. <laughs> well, County, Still sucks. It, it that's an area that's not normally hit by severe hurricanes. So that makes it more vulnerable infrastructure wise to severe hurricanes hmm. because you're not when you're designing your cities, anticipating a routine category five, the way that they do in Mississippi, they know one's going to come every 30 years, like clockwork, if not more often. Yeah. And they do. And so they bake that in the entire Western Atlantic, sorry, Western Gulf portion of the state is not as prone to hurricanes because of how hurricanes work. So it's rarer to get one that is a direct, what mm -hmm. happened with that hurricane was exacerbated by bad decisions, uh, especially a very delayed calls for evacuations that yeah. kill people. Yep. There, there is a, literally no way to mince that. That's not an exaggeration. Nope. Delayed evacuations put people on the road who would not have otherwise been, and they died on the road. Mm -hmm. That is a direct result of bad calls. Not that anything is ever easy in a hurricane situation, but I've been in the state operations center for multiple storms before, during, after. And those calls are made and solidified within a certain period of time within landfall and are not changed for a very good reason. One of those reasons is, is that it puts people on the road if you change them. And that's the right. last place that you need to be during yeah. the hurricane. So that storm aside, it's, it was an irregular event as it was, some bad decisions, not much accountability afterwards. Then you can get into this whole, I keep hearing about Casey DeSantis's relief fund that has gone missing. I, I haven't looked into that, to be fair. So it could just be internet. I have. It's... <laughs> So apparently raised about $60 million, $53 million have been accounted for. The payouts are somewhat questionable, I think. Local nonprofits here, several local nonprofits got $150, $250, even some up to $500,000 to do different pieces of work. And then there was a lot of other organizations that were maybe not as intricately involved in some of the things that the money went to. Oh yeah. They call that pork. Everybody complains about pork. Every single time there's a hurricane, it's never going to change. The mechanisms that you would need to put in place to prevent anything from getting into people who don't have the full intention of spending it exactly as they said, would delay aid, which you cannot do, which would create additional barriers to organizations to get access to, which is an, again, another delay and could prevent money from being put into reliable organizations that are most equipped to help. So enforce that's something that kind of has to be authorized, but that does not mean afterwards you cannot go back right. and hold people accountable. That's the problem. We don't do that though. Everybody complains about the pork when they're trying to pass funding for hurricane right. relief and then doesn't want to put in any mechanisms to follow up 
and actually well, let's be clear on a couple of things with this that casey desantis money that was philanthropic dollars that they raised okay this was not official aid official aid came from the federal government via fema there was state support in that but we did not get additional tax relief or additional aid from the federal government because our congressman byron donalds does not believe he's one of those fiscal extremists in the freedom caucus yeah, yeah. that's trying to wreck the economy pay right our now tax dollars to help us during disasters no he literally did not he did not even apply or ask for the routine tax relief that hurricane victims usually get. So we didn't get any of that additional dollars coming to, to the area, unfortunately, but we did get a billion Biden bucks. So there you go. Biden bucks. <laughs> yeah. At any rate, last year was not great. And we're about the same as we were last year, the year where the climate conditions look most similar to 1969, which again, as I mentioned earlier, the second argue still arguably most Intense hurricane on in history, Hurricane Camille hit Biloxi, Mississippi in 1969, leveled it, just pancaked the whole coast uh, until Hurricane Katrina came back and pretty much finished off everything that was still left and then took some new stuff with it. I actually remember they dedicated the Hurricane Camille Memorial. It was this beautiful, like round disc thing with all the name and everything the summer before Katrina and Katrina threw something into it, we're not sure what, and cracked it in half. And we saw that as bitch was sending a message, Camille my ass, like Katrina was here to play ball. Katrina's going to be the lasting image here. Yeah. Pre-instrumental records, we think that the 1935 Labor Day hurricane reached higher maximum wind speeds, but again, we were not exactly sure because we didn't even have things that could withstand those wind speeds back then. So that's based upon... Yeah. extent of damage, types of damage, what minimal wind reporting we did have, things like that. But Camille was about, and so that's I was going to say, one of the things that was interesting here about Hurricane Ian as well, is that the people who are researching it, even after the hurricane is gone. So there are people that came in, they were assessing the ground damage and looking at different All instruments that, yeah. and they had actually upgraded that Hurricane Ian was a category five for a short period of time before it made landfall. So, so. we've been doing that a lot. I call them the asterisk storms and we don't do it to historical storms beyond like the immediate survey, which bothers me. So Hurricane Katrina officially made categories made landfall rather as a category three hurricane. It did not cause category three damage. It caused category mm -hmm. five damage. And that is because hurricane storm surge, based on research that was done by Hal Needham and a bunch of other people I worked with at LSU, uh, is basically locked in between 48 and 72 hours prior to landfall in that region. Mm -hmm. so the 48 to 72 hours before Hurricane Katrina made landfall, it was a Category 5 storm, right. one of the highest maximum wind speeds in recorded history. And it brought 28 and a half feet of storm surge, which... To this day is the North American record. Yeah, that's a lot of water. If you, let's say you're five feet tall, or we'll say for the men listening, you're six feet tall. How many of you do you have to stack up before you reach what the storm surge reached during yeah, hurricane? It's, it's pretty intense. Yeah. Well, everything broke too. And we didn't do the rapid post-assessment. So we don't know for sure exactly what it was when it hit. We just, it's officially in the record book now. It's category three. Hurricane Michael 
as predicted in lifetime, struck as a hurricane category four with wind speeds comparable to Katrina. I don't think its minimum pressure was as low as Katrina, which is a better measure of what you're going to see happen than wind speed alone. And it brought 14 feet of storm surge. And as I mentioned earlier, that storm had its entire cycle within 72 hours. So 72 hours before Michael hit, it wasn't a hurricane. And so now there is obviously coastal environments shape how much water you're going to get to a extreme degree. Mississippi coastline being in the Mississippi Sound, that exacerbates storm surge. Shallow water, very warm, lead up to a longer shelf. That's going to make it worse. There are barrier islands like where Hurricane Michael was, but not to the extent where you saw things like Mexico Beach, which is oceanfront land. And yeah, it only brought about 14 feet of storm surge, mm-hmm. but it was technically, and reanalysis upgraded it to a category five. So mm-hmm. in the history books, Michael, which was by all physical measurements and it, not nearly as strong as Hurricane Katrina, will be marked down as a five. Katrina is going to stay as a three. Because storms are more complicated and just what just a numerical, yeah. The biggest well, risk to safety is storm surge. Yeah. And if nobody's on the coast, then it's fine. Nobody's going to die. And, and that's one of the most frustrating things about doing emergency management is if nobody is living in the storm surge zone, nobody will die from storm surge. Yeah. You might have your freak riverine upland thing where somebody went out to their car, not realizing that the river right next to them was over flooded and then something happens. But the majority of 300 some deaths in Mississippi were on the coast. The majority of the deaths during Hurricane Michael were on the coast, people who stayed. So it's always fun to tell people, look, we can actually make storm surge deaths near zero this year if we get everybody out. And that never happens. But you got to evacuate. You got to believe, too. And I think this falls into the fallacy that people have is that if you evacuate, right, this is actually so Irma versus Ian, because that was both hit here, right? About five years difference in between them. Irma had a pretty good evacuation. We knew it was coming. We saw it was a monster storm as it was barreling through the Caribbean. So all of the local officials, everybody was like ready. And so when we got the evacuation, everybody went. It did. It made landfall as a three because it shot up the coast from Naples and it did a lot of damage, but we didn't get the storm surge and all this other kind of stuff. But the people who had just lived through Irma are going, oh, we left and nothing. It wasn't as that bad. That's how a lot of people died during Katrina. I stayed for Camille. And at the time, they're like, you know, the worst storm in history, which was pretty true. And I was like, and I was fine. So I'm not going to leave for Katrina, not realizing, first of all, every storm is different, but also taking into account how much everything has changed in 30 years, especially in coastal environments where you have shoreline retreat, you have erosion, you have canals and dredging that are deepening ports, which things a lot worse for you, basically like hurtling down these canals. Mm -hmm. You have land use cover change. So you might've had... 10 miles of healthy estuarine environment between you and the shoreline. And now it's a subdevelopment or a golf, you know, course or something like that. There are a lot of things at play. And again, if the storm's not a literal complete replica, which is, it's near impossible, then it's not the same storm. Because if it's coming from a different direction, that changes your exposure. If, you know, it's access is people don't realize hurricanes aren't just two dimensional 
blobs on a paper, they can tilt, they can lean certain ways, they change with inside the system, then that's different. If it's not heading in the same direction, exactly, it's a different storm. Every single factor that has to do with a hurricane creates a different threat to you every single time. And you should evacuate every single time because, again, it only takes one to right. be bad. Now, my family lives on, my grandfather lives, used to live in Melbourne, less than a mile from the beach on the East Coast. And so when Dorian was coming through in 2019, I was actually, that was my first job as head of my office for the Department of Health. I could not convince my own grandfather to evacuate as a hurricane specialist working in the state's emergency operations center, trying to explain to him as, look, this storm is incredibly unpredictable. It is just sitting off the coast, building energy, momentum. It's 20 miles from Miami. Like I could have taken a nap because I did catch the flu during that, which was super fun and woken up in Miami beach had been gone. So that is how uncertain we were about where Dorian was going. And of course, I think that was Trump's storm where he did the Sharpie thing it was Dorian or maybe that was Maria, I'm not sure. But it was one of those two where he Maria. redrew the map and it was supposed to hit us over in the panhandle. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? There's no, it's, no, it's not. So that was fun to have to dispel that kind of misinformation during an active hurricane situation. This should never happen, but it did. That was the first. Lots of people at NOAA got fired from apparently publicly correcting him, which was great. But I couldn't even get convinced my own grandfather to leave. And he had his elderly in-laws. My grandfather's elderly in-laws were still alive and stayed with him a mile from the beach. Now, this storm did not hit them. And so to him, that's that means that he was right and that right. people like me cannot be trusted. And they're not understanding that it's not, I can guarantee you this storm is going to kill you. It's there's enough of a risk that it's not worth staying. And how we communicate risk in climate in general and in flooding and everything else, there aren't a lot of people who are good communicators who are the people crunching the numbers, unfortunately. I'm one of those right. rare breeds that crosses between those two, but we don't always do it well. But back to this year. So... 13 named storms. That is what they're saying. I think the average over satellite era is 14.1. Let me see if they have it. 14.4. I'm sorry. So the average for the whole time period is 14.4. They're saying 13, so slightly below average, but about equal to what we had last year. But the problem with this year's projections, and this is something that's only rarely happened, is we have unprecedented uh, sea surface temperatures in parts of the Gulf and Atlantic Ocean early. So not only are they records, they're records for all time, for all season right now. And they actually put in the line, given the conflicting signals between these two factors, we are stressing that there's more uncertainty than normal with this outlook. Normally, the thing that we're going to want to look first at is the El Nino cycle. If you're not familiar, El Nino is an oceanic cycle, irregular. It can come for months. It can come for seven years. It's caused by upwelling that we're not, as scientists, entirely sure what's feeding that process. As I said, it's the great last frontier of science is understanding the ocean. There are hordes of people who are dedicating their entire lives just to improve the accuracy of ENSO modeling by a fraction of a of 1% of a confidence interval. And we're generally, when we see what we call a positive El Nino cycle, 
that's good for Atlantic hurricanes because they create wind shear and we don't see as many. So wind shear will destroy a hurricane. It makes it so that there's air in opposition of the way that it wants to form. It's going eastwardly while the storm's trying to go this way. And it chops basically the tops off of hurricanes. So when the Pacific Enzo system is very hot, it generally means fewer hurricanes in the Atlantic and the Gulf, especially in the Atlantic. Gulf storms are a little different and we're having to look at those as their own kind of psychogenesis issue now after Michael and Harvey and everything else, but generally means we're going to see less. That's why this is projected as a below average season is because we expect El Nino to stay strong. Two big problems with that. El Nino projection is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. It's not always right. Because we don't know what causes it, it makes it very hard to expect it to do whatever we think it's going to do. But right now they're saying we're in a warm phase in the Pacific and we expect that to become stronger. If it doesn't, then you're looking at an average season just based off of Enzo. Then you add to it this competing force, which is this anonymously hot body of water. Hurricanes are heat engines. That is what fuels them. The hotter the water, the more hurricane activity you're going to see, mostly because you're just thinking of it as all of this heat's just sitting around and it's waiting for something to just start. And once it starts, it's going to just become a positive feedback loop where it gets stronger. And things like wind shear are going to be less able to halt cyclogenesis. So we're not actually sure. This is one of the few years where we've come out and been like, we've got a strong El Nino or a strong La Nina. Conditions seem to be pretty set. What we're seeing as far as sea surface temperatures this year are so abnormal. We don't actually know what impact that's going to have. Physics would tell you it's going to make it worse, but... In the competing temperature versus shear, we don't know. Mm. And uh, the next update's going to actually be tomorrow. But uh, the sea surface temperature processes, they don't happen overnight. Ocean, it takes far more energy to increase the temperature of one gallon of water than it does one gallon of air. So it's not going to just cool off suddenly. There is mm-hmm. no... You're not going to chop off ice, but go bring some ice cubes down to the Caribbean and start dumping it in and it make a difference. These are long-term processes. Um, We don't have a way to interrupt them. I'm not sure that I necessarily want science to find a way. I think we've done enough interrupting of natural (laughs) atmospheric and oceanic processes that I don't don't really want to mess with it anymore, but it is scary. It's scary as a expert in a field that already has life or death stakes all the time to say, Almost every other year now, we've got conditions that are so unprecedented that all the body of work we've done to this point doesn't give us a straight answer or enough Mm. information to be able to tell you what to plan for. That is the unpredictability that climate change is presenting is for people like me as scientists who want to inform people so they're safe, the most dangerous part. And it's the not knowing. It's like this has never happened before. That we find ourselves saying that more and more. That is, from a scientific standpoint, why climate change scares people like me. Is because we have all these people who have spent lives throughout history. You think of all the years of research combined, thousands of years of of worth of research by all these people. And then we end up in a place that we have no history of ever happening. 
Yeah. And nothing to compare to. And you can't predict and protect, which is how the science came about. Things we could say theoretically, if we were to increase heat volume by X percentage, basic physics would tell us X, Y, and Z. But as we've talked about with chaos theory, in an uncontrolled environment, you might be able to experiment for that. But in a planet where everything is constantly interacting with everything else, that's not as easy to do. In theory, more heat means more hurricanes, yes. But then we can simply say, well, if you got wind shear, then forget about it. So theory doesn't always apply to application when you're talking about the millions of people who live on the coastline, not just in this state, but across the entire Atlantic and Gulf Coast, which makes it hard. And also makes it really easy for people to discount us, to be like, you guys, you're saying there's more uncertainty. So what's the point? What's the point of a model projection if you don't know? And it's the fact that we don't know, we think is the telling statement, but unless that's communicated, like normally we're pretty good about knowing ahead of time. We don't come out and say that we're already seeing a setup that has never happened in the entire amount of time that we've been monitoring these systems. So it makes it hard for us to do our jobs. Doesn't mean that we don't know what we're doing. It means that we've now created a planet that's never happened. That's never been. Unpredictable, right? And we're going to have to react to that because our systems, our physical systems, our infrastructure, and our planet. We developed a body of research on a planet that no longer exists. Yep. And And so are you saying that the heating in the Gulf is, that's related to... To climate change, global warming? Oh, absolutely. Sea surf temperature increases are one of the uh, most illustrative of climate change that we've seen. Obviously, atmospheric things like concentrations of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide less so because of something called band saturation, which... All right, I'll do it. I'll do it. All right, quick segue. We need like a Rebecca's about to nerd out banner. (laughs) Band saturation is the idea in physics that... Every single band of light, like every wavelength, can only hold so much of something. So if we have, let's say, a thousand parts per million carbon dioxide, the impact that has in the atmosphere at a thousand versus 1500 is not nearly as catastrophic as the difference between 500 and a thousand. So basically, once you put so much up there, you've saturated that light band. There's no more of that light coming in at that wavelength that can even be absorbed by the atmosphere. Okay. So there's none left. So because carbon dioxide doesn't absorb all light, it only does it at certain wavelengths. And once you've absorbed all of that or near all of that, it really doesn't matter how much more you keep pumping in because there's nothing left for it to stop, to trap. That's when you look at gases like methane that absorb at different wavelengths and are more acute. So methane is actually, as far as heat retention, 14 times more potent than carbon dioxide, and it absorbs light at a different wavelength. So we're not near band saturation at carbon dioxide, but it's the point of, it's kind of like when you're spending money, like if you're going to buy a dress in your budget, you can afford something between 500 and $1,000. That's it. That's your firm. You're not going to be as affected if it's 800 as you are if it's 600 But once you go over that 1000 1500 is too much. It's way too much. So yeah, it's that was a terrible analogy. I just realized as it was coming out of my mouth, that was so bad. It wasn't yeah, okay. that bad. It wasn't that right, bad. It's more like a sponge. It's more like a sponge. And once the thing's soaked, it's really not going to retain any more water. You've already okay. soaked it. That's okay. it. 
it's done. It can't hold anything else. And methane is like a very dry sponge that you are just dunking into a bucket and it is ready to suck up even more and radiation into this atmosphere. That kind of stuff we can measure really well. That's beyond, like there are instruments that can actually measure it. And the ocean is the same way. So sea surface temperature, salinity, things that we can stick something in something and give it an exact reading is the easiest stuff to say. Oh, it connects to everything else is much harder. Yes. Now it, it gets very complicated when you start trying to factor in systems we don't understand. Enzo is the biggest. If somebody manages to crack that, they will win the Nobel Prize easily in science for figuring out exactly what is causing the upwelling and how this chain reaction with this irregular cycle, the most irregular physical macro scale system on the planet that shapes global weather and hurricanes, they will win lots of things. But I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're going to get there piece by piece with many scientists contributing their tiny little piece until we get to that whole picture. But you never know. You might have some genius Eureka apple falling from the tree. No, that's moment. how science generally works, though, right? It yeah. is a well, lot of people. Yeah, when we talk about body of work, it's every person putting in yep. their tiny discovery. And you build off of each other. Picture. Yeah. Now I forget what the question was. Oh, sea surface temperatures and climate change. Yeah, we have that yeah, down. Really. We have that down. We that's know that the potential for supercharged storms in the Gulf of Mexico is related to climate change. Yes. So free, hurricane frequency and definitely frequency and to a lesser extent intensity is one of the things that the IPC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is most confident has mm -hmm. been impacted and exacerbated by climate change. Yep. So there was, let's say 15, 20 years ago, a bit of a question of, okay, we're seeing more like intense storms, but are there going to be more or less of them? We thought we might see more intense storms, but fewer storms overall. That's mm -hmm. not the case. We've seen that there are more and that they're more intense. And that's as a general umbrella, but we can also quantify exactly parts of those storms that are worse. So we know that rainfall associated with tropical cyclones has increased 18 to 22% across yeah. the board in the last yeah. 30 years. That's yeah. a measurement because we know how much rain falls. Yeah. <laughs> and but it's uh, also, yeah. that's also a big factor in the stress on the infrastructure systems that we've seen, particularly in Florida and these Harvey. Gulf Coast areas. Yeah. Even I think of recently there in Palm Beach, right? There was a lot of flooding there. Our infrastructure is built was built and that wasn't even a hurricane that was right that wasn't even a hurricane flooding. it was just yeah. a bunch of rain but our yeah. infrastructure was built in the 60s and so it was based on the numbers and the volume of rain that we were getting at that and time the level of development that you had at that time also that is the other thing is people aren't appreciating a lot of cases especially in the south now in the northeast this isn't so much the case because that we developed the Northeast first. So it's more urbanized. The amount, like if you live on New York city, there's, it's an Island. You, you can only build X amount on an Island. There's no more land here. We just keep building, especially in this area of Florida, where I'm at in the panhandle where it was mostly undeveloped. And you're seeing, if you look at Navarre in the last 20 years has more than doubled in population. It's the size of Biloxi. And yet it has no actual full-scale hospital it doesn't have it doesn't even have a jimmy john's or starbucks for christ's sake but anyways that's a whole other thing it doesn't have the amenities of a city the size of biloxi 
So this rapid development, Florida in general is not great about long-term planning. There's no requirement to have local, county, or even regional planning divisions to, let's say, I-10 is one of these super important things that we need to take into account. Mm-hmm. How are we going to build around that? Are our evacuation routes going to be able to handle the amount of land that you've put up for public sale around of it? Like in 98 in my county, where we developed all of the islands, little tiny bays and islands around the coast and had one road that's not wide enough. And now nobody can get anywhere at any time. So there, there was not a lot of good planning and there wasn't any oversight and there were no stops. Hey, and, and guess what? Yep, because- sell it. Yep. Ron DeSantis signed SB 540, which was the comp plan, whatever, sprawl bill, whatever they're calling it now. But basically it cut the legs out. The one last thing that people had was the ability to try and sue to stop major developments. And now they are going to make it so that people have to pay the legal fees if they lose those cases. So it's going to chill any opposition that exists to these types of overdevelopment. Yeah, the world was very different when all of this was built. And because these major hurricane landfalls don't happen every year, that they happen on 30, if you live in a really bad place, 20-year cycles, most of the people in charge were not in charge last time one hit. And so they're coming into it with maybe a childhood memory of a storm, which somewhat even makes it worse because it's all that was so long ago. But without a real appreciation of the long-term economic consequences of overdeveloping beachfront property, which is super nerdy and sounds lit, but it's true. I'm sorry. You put people's lives on the line when you build in places that are not safe. I worked in South Louisiana. Nobody down there is safe. We are in a constant like tug of war with people to try to convince them to leave. And it their properties have no value anymore wow. because they're considered a loss. And so if they leave now, they've got nowhere to, they can't buy the same house size that they have now anywhere else because their property is now so devalued that they won't get enough to even live in a trailer somewhere else. That's crazy. Really. So we have the thing. So hurricane Hurricane. Fort Myers beach. Right. But that was because most of the buildings that were there that got destroyed were built in the sixties and seventies. So they were just, they were gone. Houses that were built after the two, after 2000 fared better, but there's been a rush, a gold rush to get in there. They're selling empty lots where the house got blown away for a million bucks. And there's a big discussion as to how should we allow this type of development? What is, how is this related to the flooding? And everybody just took the local officials, just took the, the money route instead. Of course they did. They always do. So on any given year, there's a 50% chance that there's going to be a hurricane hitting in the Caribbean or near the Florida Keys. It's almost 50. And now I think this year it might be 40, it's 49. So it's usually between 40 and 52%. They have to go through there to get into the Gulf. If they're going to form in the Gulf, it's probably going to impact them anyways. So it's a 50-50 shot every year they're going to get a hurricane. For the entire coastline this year, there's a 44% chance that they're going to get a hurricane. Again, it's nearly a flip of a coin that there's going to one be one hit hmm. the odds this year with the conditions that we have are much greater that we're going to have a hurricane hit the somewhere in the gulf from texas to the keys than they are anywhere on the east coast that's generally generally reflective of the whole trend of the east coast except for that florida is far more likely to have an atlantic coast hurricane landfall than anywhere north of that and that's because of these large systems in the atmosphere that push things that way as soon as they get up that high 
very technical terms that we're using here that way this high that way yeah but uh, that's how it, that's how it works i don't need to get into westerlies and easterlies and, and cycles and such but uh, so yeah it there's at least a one in about a one in three chance that the gulf is going to have a hurricane landfall and they actually use from the florida panhandle westward to brownsville they single out and then they'll single it out from the other direction as well you guys have less of a chance every year as we discussed earlier, but the Panhandle is actually one of the prime places for a hurricane landfall. And we've had quite a few over the last few years. And we had Michael in 2018, Hermine hit in 2016, I believe. We had, was it Sally or Sandy that hit? I can't ever remember the S storms. But Sandy was, was more... the one that hit New Jersey. Okay, so Sally was the one that hit Pensacola a couple years ago. Obviously, we had Hurricane Ida devastate the Louisiana coast in 2021. This stretch pretty much from Louisiana to the Florida Panhandle is where the worst hurricanes tend to hit. Yeah. And that's so why I like, oh, no, it's going. It's going up that way. Oh, no, they just got that one. Oh, we used to joke in Mississippi, nobody cared about us. They would be like, we think it's going to hit somewhere in the space between Slidell and Mobile. Somewhere. We're like, that's Mississippi. It's all, Miss you could say Mississippi. We think it's going to hit Mississippi. It's okay. Somewhere between the Louisiana border here and the Alabama border here. And we're like, it's, it's us. It's just in Mississippi. It's going to hit Mississippi. It's okay. But uh, now if you can just redraw maps, uh, I guess that doesn't matter. But uh, I think that I'm going to make myself available to any of y'all who are watching or, or listening to this to answer any questions you have about hurricanes, because clearly this is not a simple topic. There's a lot to unpack. I wish I had more certain projections for this year, but I can't help it that sea surface temperatures are what they are now. When we say record breaking, sometimes I don't think we understand the extent of that because record breaking could be one degree or a fraction of one degree higher than it was last year or the other year. This is anomalous. This is much, much higher than the previous record for the hottest times of the year. So it's scary. It's pretty scary, guys. From a scientific standpoint, it's in a public safety standpoint, we really need to hope that nothing gets in the Gulf, barring any dramatic changes in Enzo. If Enzo doesn't become really strong, if the Pacific Enzo system doesn't get really warm, we're going to be in a lot of trouble in the Gulf, at least. And so thank you for being here with us today. And with the hurricane season coming upon us, do be prepared. So get yes, yourself ready now. Plan. The tax holiday now. will provide exemptions for certain emergency supplies that are normally not tax exempt. This would include batteries. So frankly, even if you just want to get tax-free batteries and you want to keep them for the shelf life of 10 years or whatever they say on the packaging, just go ahead and load up now anyways. And then you've right. got them for years to come. Make sure that any that you've bought previously that are still good. Otherwise, you're going to be really disappointed if something happens and you haven't updated your batteries in 10 years. But other supplies, things like generators or discounted prices, certain non-perishables, foods and things like that. So this is really a good time, even if you're not thinking a hurricane's going to hit you, to get a tax break on necessary things. You can lose power during a storm that's not even a hurricane. Or you can flood when it's not a hurricane like they did in Fort Lauderdale or wherever the recent flooding was. And nice to have this stuff. And it's something you don't have to go rush and get when everything's crazy and the shelves are bare. Because right. as we know, we're about to hit something else really bad soon, which is Ron DeSantis's anti-immigration law that is going to go into effect is going to all leave the already 
kind of bare store shelves in Florida, even in worse shape. So let's talk about that disaster next time. (laughs) I know. The rule for hurricane preparation is food and water for every person and pet in your family for up to five days. We used to say three, but because of the unpredictability of storms, things like Harvey going from nothing to a five in 24 hours, we say five. That means a gallon of water for every single person and animal per day for five days. So for me, I would need at least five gallons of water. And frankly, I don't think that's quite enough. My kids would each would need five gallons each. My husband, my dog, I guess each of the kittens are too little now to, to drink water, but maybe just in case I'll get one each because they're newborns and this stray <laughs> family of animals that I'm taking care of and non-perishable foods, batteries for your cell phone. You can buy chargeable packs that just look like yep, a big box. Super handy. Yep. Super handy. Uh, battery operated fans because heat exhaustion is one of the leading causes in, of deaths in the immediate um, period after a major hurricane. If it's a hundred degrees in your house and you've got no power for three days and you're elderly, that's that can be problematic. They do have little USB fans that are great. Generators, obviously, if you can afford it, to make sure you're. I got the uh, the battery ones that you would get at like Disney World with a spray mist. Oh yeah, those aren't gonna last as long. I like the USB ones because you can plug them in and they'll like run all night, and they don't. They're generally more efficient. But if you are getting gasoline and you're storing gasoline for a hurricane, make sure you're doing that safely. You would be surprised how many people leave tons of gas in their garage, and then something happens, and then fire. Just be safe about it, guys. Be smart. Be safe. But yeah, it's a good time to get ready and just start thinking ahead because like we said, uncertainty. You never know. Yeah. It only takes one. For a lot of people, it doesn't even have to be a bad one. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for joining us here at Misinformational with Rebecca Jones. Thanks for dropping this bit of knowledge on us, Rebecca. And this Sorry, show I hit is- you in the face with a textbook today. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it was, yeah, we made it through. It was very good information, very helpful. Check this out and all the great shows we have at Big Mouth Media at BigMouthMediaFL.com. Subscribe to this show, $4.99 a month, $49.99 a year. Helps us keep the lights on and helps keep providing the information that you need to survive the disinformation nation. So thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining Misinformational with Rebecca Jones, brought to you by Big Mouth Media. Stay connected by visiting misinformational.com and check out all the great shows and articles on bigmouthmediafl.com. You can also join the conversation with us on Facebook, Instagram, and the cesspool that's Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to Misinformational wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.